turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. I want to read the first two verses of Matthew chapter 5, and then I want to skip ahead and read the last couple of verses in Matthew chapter 7. And then we're going to talk about what's going on in between. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Now, skip ahead to chapter 7, the end of chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Starting this Friday night, our spring Bible conference will revolve around the text that's in between what we just read. Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2 tells us Jesus had a multitude around him. He went up to a mountain. He called his disciples together, and he began to teach. And when he's finished, the end of chapter 7 records the reaction of the crowd to what Jesus taught. The message that's recorded in between what we read, those three chapters of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is known to us as the Sermon on the Mount. The men coming to speak this weekend, each of which I consider to be a good friend, will be taking their texts from Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. They won't be able to cover it all. I promised them that I would preach a... Uh, introductory message on the Sermon on the Mount, because a year's worth of sermons might not really be able to cover all that. But the conference this year is called Christ, Christians, and Culture, Six Messages on the Greatest Sermon Ever Preached. And so my goal this morning is to just give a basic introduction to the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. And I, I trust those men who are coming will each deal thoroughly and faithfully with their individual passages. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and then let's talk about the Sermon on the Mount. Heavenly Father, we are again thankful for the opportunity to be here in your house, to sing your praises, to come to you in prayer, and to hear your word proclaimed. We ask that you would please be with our service today, that our praise and worship would be found acceptable to you, that you would give me the clarity of mind and the uh, thoughtfulness and accuracy to, to deal passionately with your word, this sermon by Jesus in these chapters. Ask the Lord that you would please bless it, that you would use it according to your purpose, that you would draw us to faith and confidence in your Son, who is the fulfillment of all righteousness. Forgive me of my failures. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So I want to begin this morning by engaging your imagination in hopes that you'll connect with this sermon a little bit like the original audience might have done. So I'm going to ask you to imagine that you were a Jew in Jesus' day. 
you know, you've heard about this sort of upstart country rabbi named Yeshua, Jesus. This is still relatively early in the ministry of Jesus, but at this point, he has already garnered attention by, you know, collecting this motley gang of nobodies, including several fishermen and at least one tax collector, and calling them his disciples. He's healed the sick at Capernaum. He's started a revival in Samaria. He's gotten publicly rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. He healed a lame man and told him to carry his bed through the streets of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. That sparked a passionate and heated argument with the religious leaders, which Jesus followed up by marching into a synagogue and healing a man with a withered hand on a Sabbath day. While all the Jewish leaders and the scribes and Pharisees were watching sort of incredulously. And a Jew, as a Jew at the, the time of the Gospels, you've heard these things and you wouldn't really know what to think about this rabbi who insists that true righteousness is different than what you've always been taught. You have been steeped in the Jewish tradition and history and, and sort of cemented in your idea of what righteousness is supposed to be like, what righteousness is supposed to look like. If, if the scribes and Pharisees that you've seen are any indication, righteousness looks arrogant and confident and callous. Righteousness is all about how well you can keep the law of God, all while making sure that the people around you see how well it is you're keeping the law of God. Of course, just like everyone else, you love the stories of how God chose the Jewish people to be his own and blessed them with that law. You know how God called Abraham away from his family to a new land, calling it the promised land and promised to give it to all of Abraham's descendants forever. You know the stories of Isaac and Jacob and how God used the, the troubles of Joseph to provide a place in Egypt for his People And you know how when a, when a Pharaoh rose to power who hated the Hebrews, God delivered his people from Egypt through the hand of Moses, right? God had sent those plagues on Egypt. He established the Passover. He, he split the Red Sea, brought the Hebrews through the sea on dry land, and then collapsed the walls of water down on the Pharaoh's pursuing army. You know, the Hebrews must be God's people because God himself led them using a, a, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He led the people away from Egypt to the base of this mountain called Mount Sinai. And having traveled into the desert to the base of Mount Sinai, God announced to his people, in three days, I'm coming down there and I'm going to have something to say. So you'd better be ready. As a Jew in Jesus' day, you would know that story. As Exodus 19 and 20 describes that story, the third day that God said to be ready for, the people woke up at the base of Mount Sinai to a bone-rattling earthquake. There's clashing thunder. There's this fierce lightning. There's a, a thick cloud over the mountain. The mountain itself is on fire and, and smoking like a furnace. There's the sound of a trumpet that gets louder and louder until it's finally drowned out by the voice of God telling Moses, you tell those people not to come up here because I'll kill them if they do. And 
from that dreadful mountain, the Ten Commandments were delivered, as well as the rest of what ultimately become known as the Law of Moses. But listen, it wasn't Moses' law. Moses didn't have the authority to make up laws any more than Moses had the ability to light that mountain on fire. This is God's law. And as a Jew in Jesus' day, you know that law, or at least you think you do. The Jewish people, led by their scribes and Pharisees, had taken that law and had broken it down into 613 commands, or more specifically, 365 negative commands and 248 positive commands, or said another way, 365 thou shalt nots and 248 you had betters. 613 commands is more than anybody can successfully fulfill every moment of their life, right? But the scribes and Pharisees say that they do. They've even, over the course of 1,500 years since the law was given, they've made the law more specific and more clear by explaining what each command, well, here's what it really means. After all, if a command from God says, honor your father and your mother, what exactly do you have to do to honor them? And what can you get away with not doing? When the law says, do no work on the Sabbath day, that might seem simple enough, but thankfully the scribes and Pharisees have helpfully added an explanation about what counts as work. Right? You walk too many steps on the Sabbath day and you're working. You light a candle on the Sabbath day, you're working. If you leave a window open so that it blows a candle out on the Sabbath day, you're working. <laughs> you heal a man with a withered hand in the synagogue while everybody's watching, you're really working. This is the kind of thing that Jesus did that got people's attention. And so when Matthew 5 verses 1 and 2 says that Jesus has this multitude and he went up into a mountain and he started to teach his disciples, we know it's not just Jesus and his disciples. There are lots of people who are gathered to listen. And when the sermon is done in Matthew 7 verses 28 and 29, when Jesus ended his sayings, it says the people were astonished. Why? I mean, what's so astonishing? Well, take a look at how he starts. True righteousness doesn't look like the arrogant and confident and callous scribes and Pharisees. The blessing of God comes to an entirely different kind of people. The sermon starts in verse 3, that the blessed are Poor in spirit, in verse 4, it's those that mourn. In verse 5, it's, it's meek. And in verse 6, it's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not those who have obtained righteousness by, by keeping 613 commands in front of everybody's eyes and the, and, and the watching world. It's those who know that they're not righteous, but want righteousness so much, it's like they're starving for it. In verses five, uh, 7 through 10, it's, the merciful and the pure-hearted and the peacemakers and the persecuted. Now, if you're hearing this as a first-century Jewish person in, in that kind of mindset, this sounds like great news. The righteousness and blessing of God that Jesus is describing, it looks nothing like those scribes and Pharisees that you see around you. All of their arrogance and confidence, looking down at everybody who hasn't 
fulfilled the law just as well as they have. <laughs> you hear this and you go, Jesus says, I don't have to be as good as them. So, ah. Except the sermon's not done. Look at chapter 5, verse 20. I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. You don't have to be as good as them. You have to be better. Better. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Yeah, that's right. You have to be better than them. How? How can you possibly be more righteous than the very most righteous people you've ever seen in your life or the people you've ever heard of in your life? More righteous than the people who have so digested the commands of God, so painstakingly detailed the law that they've produced their 613 commands and prohibitions, along with a detailed clarification of just how to fulfill each one of them. Is Jesus saying that you have to do away with the law of Moses, that righteousness has nothing to do with obeying God's commands and prohibitions? All that stuff doesn't matter anymore. Is that what Jesus is saying? I don't think so. Look at chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Do not think that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. The law is God's law. God has a standard for righteousness that is unchanging. God's standard for righteousness will not be abolished. It's not going to be amended. When Jesus says you have to do even better than the scribes and Pharisees, he isn't saying you do better than them by ignoring what the word of God says. You have, there has to be a fulfillment of what the word of God says. The scribes and Pharisees, for all of their detailed explanation of the law, they had not expanded the law, they had reduced it. Do, do you grasp this? Jesus is telling the crowd that the scribes and Pharisees did not make things harder on them. The scribes and Pharisees were in reality making things too easy on them. Counting your steps on the Sabbath is easy. Making sure your candle is out and your window is closed is easy. All of those things are things that you can do externally. Listen, the worst person you have ever met in your life, which is maybe you, but it's probably me, the worst person you have ever met in your life is able to count their steps and close windows and blow out candles. The scribes and Pharisees had reduced righteousness to sort of these meaningless motions that, that happen on the outside. So listen to what Jesus does. He goes back to the law, the simplest statements in the law, the, the Ten Commandments from the top of Mount Sinai, and he shows what those things really mean. Look at chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. 
And whoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. Who shall ever say to his brother, Raka, which is an insult like saying, you idiot, shall be in danger of the council. Whoever shall say, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So what's Jesus saying about murder? What, what does murder really mean? Murder doesn't happen at the moment some gunshot victim takes their final breath. It happens before that. It doesn't happen at the moment the bullet enters their heart. It happens before that. It doesn't happen when you pull the trigger or even when you pull out a gun. God declares you hopelessly guilty of murder at the moment your heart first contrives the inexcusable anger that would lead you to murder. Even if you stop your actions before you take that step, God judges your heart. You get this? The, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was external, right? It was found in 613 things. Anybody can see you doing or see you not doing. The righteousness God demands is internal. It is found in your heart. Or more accurately, that righteousness is not found in your heart. Jesus isn't done. He goes to another of the Ten Commandments in verse 27 of Matthew 5. Verse 27 and 28, you've heard it said by them of old time, you shall not commit adultery, but I say unto you that whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Right? Thou shalt not commit adultery isn't a command you can fulfill just through abstaining from the outward actions of having sexual relations with somebody you're not married to. Can I be so blunt as to say it like this? The body part most to blame in adultery is in your heart. It is desperately, unknowably wicked. And those dark recesses of your mind where sexual immorality lies hidden away from the world, and you think, well, nobody sees that, it is not hidden away from God. The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees would be satisfied just by refraining from that word action without regard to anything happening in your heart and mind that leads to that action. Incidentally, this becomes this sort of constant source of fury and smoke between Jesus and the Pharisees. Later on in Matthew 15, the Pharisees accused Jesus' disciples of being unrighteous because they didn't wash their hands in just the right ritual way before eating. And Jesus' answer to them was essentially, don't you get it? Sin isn't the externals, it's about what's going on inside of you. It's not what's outside coming in. It's what's already in there. And so he says, quote, the things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemy. These are the things that defile a man. This sermon that Jesus is preaching here in these chapters, it just doesn't, Stop here. Although in fairness, we should probably know, it's not probably a sermon in the formal sense of the word. Right? If you pick up chapters 5 through 7 in Matthew and you, you read it all at once, it would probably take you 15 minutes. Do any of you think that great multitudes of people climbed a mountain to listen to Jesus preach for 15 minutes? This is more likely sort of a a concise outline of the teaching that Jesus was doing over the course of several days 
It is a message about true righteousness. What really is righteousness in the eyes of God? And it changes your perception about sin, like murder and adultery. Jesus' demand for true righteousness changes your perception about like what, what basic honesty is all about. In, in Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37, Jesus basically says we get so caught up in making promises and, and oaths to try to strengthen what our, what our word says that we ignore what real honesty is in people. True, righteous honesty is someone who just says yes and means yes or says no, and they mean no. It's just basic, reliable honesty all the time. It changes what you think love is really about. In chapter 5, verses 43 through 45, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those that hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. That you may be the sons of your father in heaven, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. You mean if you have the true righteousness God demands, you don't just show loving kindness for the people who you like and who like you, but the true righteousness that God commands is that you be like God himself and show loving kindness to everyone? That doesn't sound pharisaical, right? And in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, true righteousness changes the way that you give Charitably, in in verses 5 through 15, it changes the way you pray. Prayer isn't going to be self-focused since you'll be saying things like, yours is the kingdom and power and glory. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. If I have food today, it's because you give it to me. If I have forgiveness, it's because you're the source. And you'll be doing all of that privately more than you'll be doing it publicly to be seen by everybody else. Chapter 6, verses 19 through 34, it changes how you think about your job and your money and your future. The greatest concern is going to be, in chapter 6, verse 33, seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You get this? Seeking God's righteousness because, back in the Beatitudes, you hunger and thirst for righteousness. And, And you need righteousness that goes beyond the scribes and the Pharisees. This is like this continual theme in Jesus' sermon. And you'll trust if you're seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness that he's going to be perfectly capable of taking care of your future. In Matthew 7, true righteousness demands that you judge yourself with a more strict standard than you judge others. Again, not much like the Pharisees. And so how, how can we do this? Right? I don't want to make this more simple or more complicated than Jesus himself does. Like, like who am I to edit and amend Jesus' sermon? To be sure, Jesus does insist on verifiable acts of external righteousness. Right? Look, at, look at chapter 7, verses 15 through 19. Beware of false prophets. Who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? 
Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. A tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There's a difference between what we see on the outside and what God judges on the inside. So that in verse 15, there are false prophets who on the outside, they look like sheep, but Jesus says on the inside, they are ravenous wolves. And so he describes righteousness like a, a tree, a good tree yields good fruit, and a bad tree gives bad fruit. When I was teaching at the college, I like to illustrate this with the, one of my favorite illustrations of the bachelor crock pot. Follow me here. A guy who lives alone is not trying to impress anybody. Sometimes they cook something in a crock pot, and when they're done, they wash the inside because that's what touches the food. And on the outside, there's like caked on stuff from two years worth of whatever grossness has dribbled down the outsides of them. But who cares? That's just on the outside, right? My food's not going to touch that. We live our lives like bachelor crockpots in reverse, right? This is what we say. Well, I'm going to clean up on the outside. I'm going to make sure that people can see that I'm doing the, the right stuff externally because that's going to convince them that my life is clean. Inside, not so much, but what do I care? Nobody sees that. Well, somebody sees that. It's the one who judges What's going on on the inside? And in fairness, before you think I'm too clever, Jesus used that illustration about 2,000 years before me. Right? It, it wasn't a crock pot. In Matthew 23, he says the scribes and the Pharisees are like cleaning the outside of a cup, but the inside is filthy. He even goes a step further to call them whited sepulchers, or in other words, a tomb that's nicely painted on the outside, but inside it's full of rotting, decaying bones. So this message, it isn't like Jesus is saying, well, everything that's happening on the outside doesn't matter, but he's saying what's happening on the outside should be a reflection of what's happening on the inside. A good tree brings good fruit. A tree that doesn't produce good fruit, a tree that produces evil fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. You know Jesus isn't talking about trees there, Right? And so what do we do with this? We can't take this sermon and say, Jesus wants me to clean up all the things on the outside. Clearly, that's the way the scribes and Pharisees thought. But we also can't listen to this or, or read this sermon and think that, well, we're okay on the inside because we're not. He, he's already taken us back to the law and said, you need righteousness that goes beyond the scribes and the Pharisees, but you're already murderers. You're already adulterers. So where is it that we can find this righteousness? Well, go back to chapter 5 and listen to what he said. He takes us to the Old Testament law, that righteous standard of God, and says that standard is not changing. But listen, Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Do not think I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, 
One jot or one tittle will in no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. God's righteous standard is going to be fulfilled. Who's going to fulfill it? The one who says, I've not come to destroy it. I've come to fulfill it. Jesus is the fulfillment of the righteous standard of God. Faith in him and the person and work of God the Son is the only effective means to change what's wrong with us on the inside. And when he changes what's going on with us on the inside, that change is going to be displayed in the external true righteousness that people can see. Had you been one of those curious Jews who followed Jesus up the mountain to listen as he taught the disciples? Y'all, this sermon would have been mind-blowing to you. To say that your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is like just tossing a live grenade into the crowd and watching it blow up. You see that in Matthew's closing remarks in in chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. It came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. It's just jaw-dropping, awestruck astonishment by the crowd for (coughs) two reasons. The two reasons Matthew describes is what he taught, that is, they were astonished by his doctrine. We've talked about some of that. But not just that. It's also shocked at the way he taught it. For he taught as one having authority, not like the scribes. Their reaction to the Sermon on the Mount was complete awe because, for one thing, they had not heard good preaching before. If I can dare say without getting in trouble for it that Jesus has a preaching style, it shows up in the Sermon on the Mount. Like, we can't literally hear the words, but you can just read it. And it's like, as you read it, the volume is getting turned up the further you get into the sermon. Like, I can't imagine Jesus was screaming the Beatitudes at the top of his lungs. Right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn. Like, it's not how it's starting out. It starts off beautifully and delicately about the mournful and the the meek and the hungry and the pure-hearted. And then it heats up to this, I have not come to destroy the law. And a little more intense, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, I'm telling you, you're not getting into heaven. And that pace sort of continues, sort of slowly rising until you get to the final illustration in chapter 7, that illustration we like to teach our children to sing about. Whoever hears and obeys what I'm saying, he's like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain descended and the flood came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it was built on a rock. But whoever hears this and doesn't obey, he's like a foolish man who built his house on a sand and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Not a bad way to end, right? (laughs) Okay, 
okay, sermon over. Let's have the song leader come forward and we'll have a hymn of invitation. And so the reaction was this jaw-dropping amazement. And I don't think we should ignore that sort of stylistically, this is just good preaching. Content-wise, it is phenomenal preaching. And so the crowd is just stunned. And their reaction is to say, well, this is nothing like everything we've heard from the scribes. But there's something else. It's not just the style, but it's also the authority. Chapter 7, verse 29 says, right? Every scribe that you would have heard preaching throughout your lifetime and for hundreds of years before this, every scribe would open the scrolls of the Old Testament and they would read God's word and then they would follow that up by just sort of the collected wisdom and tradition of the rabbis of the past. Well, now that I have read to you this section from the Torah, let me tell you that Rabbi Rabin says this, that means this, and Rabbi Mosheim says this means that, and Rabbi Shlomo explains, you know, and it is boring, not to mention wrong. It's not preaching with authority, continually quoting somebody else, and what they said in the past is preaching by authority. Jesus is preaching with authority authority. He was the authority. I mean, he even consistently called those other traditional teachers wrong. You look back at chapter 5 and verse 21. You have heard that it was said by them of old time. Verse 27. You've heard that it was said by them of old time. Verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said by them of old time. In other words, this is what you have continually been told and how you've been taught and each one of those is ultimately followed up with but I say unto you so who has authority they taught by authority he taught with authority and that wasn't shocking enough he didn't just go beyond the scribes he went beyond the Old Testament prophets themselves Think about the Old Testament prophets and any reading you've done in the Old Testament. What is the most common introduction the prophets used as they were speaking as the oracle of God? When they were speaking on behalf of God, how did they describe it? 413 times in the Old Testament. Thus saith the Lord. 14 times in this sermon alone, I say to you. Now, there are times in the Gospels where Jesus assures us that he is speaking on behalf of God, similar to the Old Testament prophets, but he does not have to do that. He is God. And so this weekend at the Bible conference, and I hope you'll be here, as Jack and Justin and Lewis preach from the text of Matthew 5 through 7, keep this in mind. This is, this is God speaking to us. In fact, we look at that story that old story from Exodus of Mount Sinai, and we sort of tremble before it because, after all, there's you know bone-rattling earthquake and clashing thunder and, and fierce lightning. There's that thick cloud. The, the mountain's on fire. The smoke's going up. There's this deafening noise. Everything tells us we should tremble at that kind of authority. Why do we come to the Sermon on the Mount and not tremble before this? This is God himself. Again, condescending to come down to the mountain and declare his own righteous standard. And by the authority of Jesus, God in the flesh, what this sermon says 
is your ideas of righteousness are too shallow. True righteousness is not just external. True righteousness is not self-serving. True righteousness is focused on God as if you were starving for him. True righteousness is honest all the time. True righteousness acts in love towards others even if they don't love you. And you, you are either good or you are evil. You are either on the narrow path or you are on the broad highway. There is no middle ground. The only available ground is the solid rock of Jesus Christ or the sinking sand of destruction. The only righteousness available is through the Lord Jesus who himself fulfills all righteousness. So now, act accordingly. 